This morning we begin a series of messages we are calling A Word to the Nuns as we attempt to superimpose biblical truth and the loving Lordship of Jesus over a new expression of unbelief in our nation. And so for these next four weekends, we will hear from three different apostles and from the Lord Jesus Himself speaking to our generation in their very own words. Well, it is likely, if you've ever been admitted to the hospital, that you filled out a form that looked something like this one. I want you to notice there's a space on the form for you to register your religious preference or your church affiliation, or there's a box that says, none. You can check that box. And the people who check that box are saying that they have no preference. They're saying that they are not affiliated with any religion or any church. Now this is probably the simplest way for me to introduce you to the nuns. These unaffiliated people are part of an increasing number of Americans who identify with no organized faith group, none. And take a look at this graph that shows their growth in the last 40 years. This is from 1972 to 2012. The blue line is the 18 to 29 age group. The red line is the age 30 to 49 age group. And the green line is age 50 and above. But I want you to notice that in all three categories, that unbelief has increased dramatically in the last 40 years. According to the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, a growing number of Americans now are disconnected from any church. In the last five years alone, we have gone from 15% of the population to 20% of the population that are unaffiliated. This is a total of 46 million people. Now, of these 46 million people, 13 million would identify themselves as atheists or agnostics, and another 33 million would identify them themselves not as atheists or agnostics. They don't even want to claim any affiliation with them. They are completely unaffiliated. We might call them apatheists. Apatheists are people who might describe themselves by saying, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Here's the way the nuns 
break down. You've got the atheists who say, I don't believe God exists. You've got the agnostics who say, I can't know if God exists. And you've got the apatheists who say, I don't care whether God exists or not. Okay, now, friends, my purpose today is not to bury you with information. I want to focus on the word that the Apostle Paul has for the nuns, particularly the atheists. So turn with me to Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 16. That's where we'll spend our time this morning, but let me fill you in just a little bit before we give our attention to this passage in Acts 17, 16. Paul was on his second missionary journey. He was waiting in the beautiful cosmopolitan city of Athens to connect up with his co-workers, Timothy and Silas. Now, ancient Athens was a city of contrasts. It was a world-renowned center of education, particularly philosophical thought. This was the home, you see, of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. But in glaring contradiction to their intellectualism, Athens was also filled with superstition. One ancient historian tells us that there were 30,000 idols distributed throughout the city during this period in history. So Paul arrived in Athens. The Apostle Paul arrived in Athens. And he's not come as a sightseer, friends. He's come as a soul winner. He shows up in Athens with open eyes and a broken heart. Paul was moved by his love for lost people. He was moved by his devotion for the truth about the one true and living God. So he seized the opportunity to publicly share the good news about Jesus and the resurrection on the Areopagus. The Areopagus is another name for Mars Hill. We've got a picture of it here. It's a place in the city that was designated for both planned and impromptu assemblies. And I've been there, right there in front, the flat rock, that's Mars Hill. I've been there. I've climbed the crude steps, spoken from that platform, that elevated rock, in the shadow of the Parthenon. That's the Parthenon in the background. This is a temple that is dedicated to pagan deities of Greek mythology. And that's where the Apostle Paul stood and shared the message that we're going to look at together this morning. Now, listening to someone talk about new ideas, well, that was a favorite pastime in Athens. It was kind of a first-century perpetual talk radio. And Paul's primary audience here on this day was a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And the Epicureans were atheists. They denied God's existence. They did not believe in the afterlife. They were thoroughly materialistic and hedonistic. Their active lifestyle was one of daily self-indulgence. There's a motto over their lives. It said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And my guess is that some of you know some Epicureans. But the Stoics were also atheists. They did not believe that God created man. They believed that man created God's, small g, plural. They believed that Humanity is driven by natural law and that people just kind of have to get through life. They just have to endure life. And so their passive lifestyle 
could be summed up in this motto, just get through it, accept it, because you can't change it. And I imagine some of you know some Stoics. Now, the Epicureans treated Paul with disrespect. They even called him a babbler. The Stoics, they were willing to give him a hearing, but for the wrong reason. They thought that they might need to add another god, small g, to their polytheistic system. And so on this occasion, the Apostle Paul is speaking to first-century unbelievers. The Epicurean and Stoic philosophers parallel the atheistic nuns of our generation. And before this assembly of atheists, the Apostle Paul stepped up and he stood up and he cleared his throat and he announced in Acts 17, 22, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built with hands. And my guess is he gestured at the Parthenon over his right shoulder. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything else. From one man He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and He determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. Therefore. Since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, for He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed, and He has given proof of this to all men by raising Him from the dead." Paul masterfully connected with his audience, and he built a bridge to the unknown God, capital G, singular. And in these eight insightful verses, he reveals four powerful truths that can help the nuns to know the unknown God, or as I'm going to refer to Him this morning, the, the up-close and personal God. The first truth is that closeness to God is more than religion. Verse 22 and 23, Paul said, I see that you're very religious. As I look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, this serves as a reality check for all of us. It's really not unusual for a person to claim to be religious but not be close to God. That was the case with the Epicureans and Stoics. They were very religious. Paul even said so. But they were not close to God. 
And you know as well as I do that religion can actually promote a selfish agenda. Some people use religion to project their own egos so they can feel good about themselves. And some people use religion to exploit others so they can worship their real God, which is money and the things that money can buy. And some use religion because they like the power and the control over others. Jim Jones, David Koresh, Warren Jeffs, for example. Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, he offered the disciples money because he wanted to buy the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit because he wanted control over people. And Peter said, may your money perish with you. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord for forgiveness. And I take away from that that people who use religion for their own selfish needs or ends are doing something that is wicked, wicked, and will be, will be judged by God unless a person repents. Jesus strongly confronted the Jewish leaders who had substituted religion for closeness to God. A lot of the scribes and Pharisees came under the indictment of Jesus because they were into religion, but they were not close to God, and most of them didn't get it. And so they were the ones who plotted for His death. You see, some religions out there today exist in stark contrast to the relationship that God desires. And you see that relationship when you look in the book of Genesis at the communion that God had with Adam and Eve in the garden. That's what He wants. And it is something we will all experience one day, Revelation 21.3. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. That's the closeness to God. It transcends religion. So don't miss the real thing. Don't Substitute religion for closeness to God. <laughs> religion does not make us acceptable to God. Jesus does. Religion does not save us. Jesus does. Religion does not take away sin. Jesus does. Religion does not satisfy your soul. Only Jesus does. And if God remains unknown to you, then you're missing what you were created for. You were not created for religion. You were created for a close, personal relationship with God. John said it as succinctly and as powerfully as it can be said in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love God and others because He first loved us. And friends, it's my conviction that the reason why most nuns languish in unbelief today is that the love of God has never been made real to them. But when it happens, when we make sure they experience God's love, we make sure that they see that it's about closeness to Him, not about religion, it'll change their hearts. Well, what else does Paul have to say to the nuns? He tells them that closeness to God is dependent on believing the truth about Him. Verses 23 to 25. So what is this truth? I think it can be summed up in three simple declarative statements right out of Paul's message here. The first one is this, He created everything. Paul said it this way, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, friends. This is what I would call a top-button truth. You get this one right, and everything else will line up. 
But if you get this one wrong, then nothing really lines up and makes sense. So believe it, believe it, from the microcosm to the macrocosm, from the atoms to the planets, from the weightless, translucent light forms in the depths of the deepest ocean to the 200,000-pound blue whale, the raw materials all came from God. He is the originator and the designer. Every thoughtful person will confront three questions during their lifetime. Where did I come from? What am I doing here? Where do I go when I die? And the only place where you can go for straight answers that are clear and truthful and trustworthy and authoritative is the Word of God. Science tries to answer the first one, where did I come from? Philosophy tries to answer the second one, why am I here? Theology tries to answer the third one, where am I going? But only in the Word of God do you get clear, believable answers to those questions. And I'm telling you, for me, it's too much of a stretch to believe that this universe was birthed from nothingness and that it ordered itself by accident. Too much of a stretch for me. To be honest, let's be honest for a minute. The only reason creationism is resisted by most today is because people know that if we are indeed the special creation of a holy God, ultimate accountability for the life we live is implicit, and some people don't want that accountability. Here's something else we've got to believe about God, and that is He's totally self-sufficient. Paul said it this way, He's not served by human hands as if He needed anything. God is complete in Himself. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's unity in the Godhead that is beyond our comprehension. And the Mormons abandon the doctrine because it's not reasonable, and they superimpose human reason over scriptural revelation. And the Je Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe it because it's not reasonable, and they superimpose human reason over biblical revelation. I am glad that at the heart of my faith, there exists a mystery that is beyond human comprehension or explanation. I'm glad that I cannot, in a few glib statements from my finite mind and my limited vocabulary, I can explain the nature of God to everyone's satisfaction. I love the fact that there's a veil drawn across it. And the mystery adds to the majesty. Friends, God does not need us for self-fulfillment, and He does not need us for security, and He does not need us for affection. Does He love us? Absolutely. Does He need us? Absolutely not. The next phrase in Paul's message impresses another truth about God. See, while He does not have needs that we can meet, He meets all of our needs. Did you catch what Paul said? He gives to all people life and breath and everything else. <laughs> he is the source and the sustainer of life. And Jesus said, 
The Father knows how to give good gifts to His children. If we ask Him for bread, He won't give us a stone. If we ask Him for fish, He won't give us a serpent. Scripture says He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. And if you believe these three truths, that He created everything, that He is totally self-sufficient, and that He is the source of every good gift we receive in life, you believe those things, and it will move you into a position of closeness to Him. Paul also tells the nuns in his day and ours that closeness to God, well, that's what he wants. From one man he made every nation of men so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. And in God's love and wisdom, He's made Himself accessible to us. He wants us to seek Him and to reach out for Him. And friends, He wants us to find Him, and He's not far from each one of us. In fact, He's made the first move toward us. He's revealed Himself to us. He's sought us. He's pursued us, and we've all experienced it, haven't we? My guess is we could turn this into a testimony meeting today, and every one of you have some kind of a story from your personal history where God drew near to you. It was unmistakable in your mind. We've all experienced haven't we? But God also desires that we seek after Him and we reach out for Him. Why is that? Listen, only that which is worth seeking has value to us. When I was in high school and during my college years, I never had a steady girlfriend. I, I never dated the same girl more than, than a, a few weeks at most. And there, there was something about it. I think I, I would make them sick because when I would take them out to eat and the server would come and say, what would you like? They would always say, I'll just have a Coke, please. So there was something about me that, that kind of made them sick. And then I met my wife, Kayleen. Well, she was different. I took her to Steak and Shake. I had a $10 bill. I asked her what she would like. She said, I'll have a double steak burger, an order of fries, chili three ways, and an orange freeze. So when the server came to the table, I said, I'll just have a Coke. <laughs> Suffice it to say, that Kayleen did not throw herself at me. <laughs> I had to pursue her. Friends, if, if God just threw Himself at us, we wouldn't pursue Him, we wouldn't value Him, we wouldn't honor Him. God said to His people through the prophet Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
And I found it to be so often true what James, the half-brother of Jesus, said in James chapter 4, verse 8. Come near to God, and He will come near to you. Well, one more word for the nuns from Paul. And that is this. Closeness, closeness to God begins with humility. Verses 30 and 31. God commands all people everywhere to repent, for He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising Him from the dead. Now, I know that this is where the nuns get turned off. This is what causes their brows, eyebrows to lower. This is what causes their jaws to tighten. But I don't know what to do about that. When it comes down to it, Almighty God is sovereign, and there's nothing we can do to change that. It is His nature. He's above all others, superior to all others, supreme in power and rank and authority. And because He's sovereign, He's the boss. He calls the shots. He has the authority. What He says goes. God is ultimately in control. That doesn't turn me off. That turns me on. I'm thankful for that. I've sat in the driver's seat of my life before. I don't, I don't like the outcomes. I want to submit to Him, surrender to Him, humble myself before Him. But we all have to decide, don't we? We have to decide whether we're going to, whether we're going to resist Him or ignore Him or humble ourselves before Him. Can I tell you the story of a real-life nun? His name? Lou Fricky, 45 years old, number one real estate agent in Santa Clarita Valley, California for 10 years running. Lou, Lou was rich, successful, and handsome with a lovely wife and two precious little girls. He had a palatial home in the hills, and he had all the toys. I met Lou one Sunday after our worship service in the theater complex. I introduced myself to him and I complimented him for being faithful in our new church with his family. He immediately but politely informed me that his wife Susan was a believer, that she was a Christian, and that he attended with her and his girls because it was the right thing to do. It was a good thing to do. But he said, I am not a believer and I have no faith. So if Lou Fricky would have filled out that hospital form that I showed you at the outset, he would have checked the box, none. I asked Lou if he would be interested in getting together to talk. He agreed, but he let me know that he had already met with well-known pastors John MacArthur and Jack Hayford, and he was unmoved. So we studied over his lunch hour once a week for six weeks, and I prayed hard that God would use me to open Lou's head and open Lou's heart. He was a reader. So I gave him a couple of books, The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith by former atheist Lee Strobel. 
it came down to our final conversation. And I didn't feel like I had made much progress, but before I left his office that day, I said, Lou, I have to tell you after our study and our discussions that I don't think your problem with faith in God is intellectual. I think it's got to be something else. So can I just ask you a personal question? Okay, he said. So I just threw out a question that I am certain today that God impressed on me to ask him in that moment. I said, Lou, what was your relationship with your father like? He scowled. He got quiet, and then it came out. He said, my dad was an alcoholic who left my mother and me and my four younger siblings to chase other women. He physically abused my mother and us kids. He was hardly ever home, and he never provided for us. And at age 15, I sat on the top step of a stairway with a loaded shotgun waiting for him to come through the front door, and I would have killed him that day. Later, he said, I became a real estate agent because my father hated real estate agents. <laughs> I hated him, and I wanted nothing to do with him. I said, Lou, Lou, that's it. That's it. Don't you see? In the deepest part of who you are, you have projected your contempt and alienation from your earthly father onto your heavenly father. The next few weeks were transformational for Lou. His wife saw me in church one day, gave me a big hug, and through tears she said, I can't believe it. Louis is putting the girls to bed, reading the Bible to them, and praying with them. Lou committed his life to Christ. He's become a vital part of that new church plant in Santa Clarita, California. It's my conviction, friends, that those 46 million people who would identify themselves as nuns, I'll bet you almost all of them have a story of something that happened in their lives, some disappointing relationship, some crisis of some sort that closed them up and closed them off from the reality of God. And they're missing that closeness that Paul wanted to bring to the atheists on Mars Hill that day long ago. When Paul mentioned the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, it became a moment of decision. It became a time of commitment for these atheistic Epicureans and Stoics. And it's interesting to see how they reacted in Acts chapter 17, verse 32. Some of them sneered, and others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And a few, a few became followers and believed. And this is the predictable response, folks. Every time the gospel is witnessed, every time the gospel is taught, every time the gospel is preached, some say no. Some say, we'll hear you again. Some say yes. And I sincerely hope and pray that this is your day 
to have the humility to say yes. Your day to begin to experience closeness to God for yourself. Or if you've already said yes and you are experiencing that closeness to God, I want to challenge you to identify, I want to challenge you to pray for and cultivate a friendship with someone like Lou Fricky. Will you determine today that you will find and share your faith, your life with a nun? We're about a month away from the second weekend in November when we expect to see many commitments to the Lord evidenced by baptism. Will one of them be you? or someone you've reached out to. We're here at the front today for you. If you have a decision to make about Christ or Crossroads, won't you come up and talk to us while we stand in worship in a final song.